There are two words that we find at the very end of the book of Acts. The very last two words, one, one word in Greek, but we don't need to go there. And those last two words are without hindrance. I like those last two words. Without hindrance. I wish I had a without hindrance button in my life. Right? When you have to do things that you're going to be distracted by, things that people might oppose, things that might be hard. I wish I could push a without hindrance button and be unhindered. Well, it's a great ending to Acts 28 because it's in the context of the Apostle Paul being able to do some hard things, and that would be to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel to people who are Jewish, are Gentile, are all different kinds of people. Maybe they like what they're hearing, maybe they don't like what they're hearing, but it says at the very end of the book of Acts that for two years, the Apostle Paul was able to do what he had longed to do for so long, what he had been promised he would do for two years. He did gospel ministry, telling people about forgiveness, telling people about reconciliation with God, telling people how to have their sins forgiven, how to be guaranteed resurrection. For two years, he told people about that without hindrance. It ends, the book of Acts does, on the optimistic note. And so we'll end there today because we're wrapping up the book of Acts. But I wanted to tell you ahead of time that it ends with those two great optimistic words, without hindrance. And while none of us are the Apostle Paul, uh, and none of us have been given that exact promise, we will talk today at the end about being optimistic about gospel ministry, even in our own place. So if you haven't found Acts 28 yet, I would encourage you to do that. If you're just joining us, It's too late. (laughs) It's not too late. We're glad you're just joining us, but we are wrapping up our study of the book of Acts. Lord willing, we'll start a study next week dealing with the Exodus theme in the Bible. uh, And we'll start in the book of Exodus. Uh, But we've had a great time studying the book of Acts. And as we've studied the book of Acts, it means actions, the actions of the apostles. And we back up and say, actually, it's the actions of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And we back up even further and say, actually, it's the actions of Jesus Christ, even though he's ascended through the power of his spirit in the lives of the apostles, as well as the other men and women and boys and girls. It's the early church's initial history. And it is an optimistic kind of book. And yet, you know what? A lot of hard things happen in the book of Acts. So maybe... Two more words. I won't keep doing this and be confusing with two two words, two words, two words. But when you think about the whole book of Acts, two words do come to mind, and those two words would be promise and providence. And they're actually important words that help us to be optimistic, that help the Apostle Paul be optimistic. And so when we say promise, well, there's the promise that the gospel is, in fact, chapter 1, verse 8, the gospel is going to go in Jerusalem, and then it's going to go beyond, then it's going to go beyond, and then it's going to eventually go to the ends of the earth. Strategically, it's going to go there by going to Rome. So there's that kind of promise. The Apostle Paul was even promised by Jesus himself that he would get to go to Rome. For example, in Acts 23, verse 11, you must testify also in Rome. So you have these great promises, not to mention the fact that there are promises that if you believe in Jesus, you will be forgiven of your sins. 
So promise after promise, these promises from God, some of them apply to all Christians, to all people who would believe in Christ. Some of them are only for Peter or Paul or Stephen or James or other people involved. But promise is really an important one. If God makes a promise to you, you know it's going to come to pass. But what's also important to remember in the book of Acts is providence, providence. Christians used to use this word a lot. We probably should recover it. Providence, just think of the word provide. God always provides. But providence can take into account the good and the bad when it comes to circumstances. This is why Christians who've gone before us uh, have wisely said things like, because they, they believe that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love him, those who've been called according to his purpose, Romans 8. So all of the things are working for good. And so you can say, when a bad thing happens, a tragedy strikes, maybe Stephen is martyred like in the book of Acts, we could say that's a hard providence. We know God is still in control because the promise is going to be true, but this is hard for us. It's caused us grief and pain and sorrow. This is a hard providence. The Apostle Paul, I mean, in a lot of ways, you think without hindrance, the whole book of Acts has been a hindrance. <laughs> trying to get him to get from Israel to Rome seems to have been nothing but a hindrance. Shipwreck, chaos, all kinds of turmoil. Providence. And yet we see good things happening. We're going to see it today. We're going to see unbelievers showing great hospitality to Paul and company. And we would say, this is a good providence, right? This, this is good the way this has happened. And that God is using the good and the bad providentially, circumstantially, through nature, through people, through circumstance, to make sure that the promise actually is fulfilled. And so keep those ideas in mind when you read the book of Acts. You'll say, man, what a mess. How terrible. Injustice. The apostle Paul's arrested and he shouldn't be. He didn't break, break any laws. He didn't commit crimes. And, and then one bad thing after another after another. Some hard providences. But if you can remember the promise, you can say, oh, there are good providences and there are bad providences, but God is working all together to accomplish his purposes. Well, I feel like we should close in prayer. <laughs> we haven't even gotten to verse one yet. So in verse one, we probably should go there, but keep these kinds of things in mind. We want to be optimistic now and in the end. Let's go ahead and dive in. Verse one says, we're going to do all 31 verses. It says in verse one, after we were brought safely through, through some of the scariest times of their lives, we learned there are 276 of them that have been on the ship that has capsized, that has crashed, that has been destroyed. And now they, they need to swim to land. We learned about that in chapter 27. So after we were brought safely through the super hard providences, if you will, we then learned that the island that they could see at the time we learned about last week was called Malta. So some 58 miles south of Sicily. So they're getting really close. Anybody been to Malta? It's on my list of places to go. If you're bored today, go to YouTube and watch some documentaries of Malta. Number one thing they eat in Malta is rabbit stew. The other thing they eat is lampuki pie. <laughs> you say, what does that have to do with it? It's fish pie. I don't think I'm going to get the fish pie when I go to Malta someday. And that might be irrelevant. It might be relevant to something we talk about later. 
Okay, enough of that silliness. Verse 2 says, the native people, sometimes translated barbarous, probably because they're not Greek-speaking, they have their own uh, dialect. The native people, the, the, the barbarous people perhaps, maybe that's seeing it too negatively. But the people who live on Malta showed us unusual kindness. I would say providentially so. It's, it's not usual for them to be so kind to us. And so they show unusual kindness, and God is using that. So that's providential, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and, cue the viper about to bite music, fastened on his hand. That would be a bad providence, right? Verse 4, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man, this man that we've been showing unusual kindness toward, just, just like a second ago, this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, capital J, the deity of justice, has not allowed him to live. We would call these people superstitious. They're superstitious. People who are superstitious don't understand things like promise and providence. So they don't have that kind of point of reference. They don't have a Christian perspective that God can be causing all things to work together for good. What they end up doing is say, say, saying, when bad things happen, it means you're bad. And the deity or deities are not happy with you. And when good things happen, it means you're good. And it means the deity or deities are happy with you. And it's anything but stable. Superstitious people aren't stable. They're not grounded. And these people are superstitious. Oh, something bad happened. Means he's bad. They haven't read Psalm 73, not to mention the book of Ecclesiastes. But I digress. They try to interpret life through circumstances without a greater perspective. It says in verse 5, He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when he had waited a long time... When they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Commentators think that Luke is probably even recording this away in such a way that would cause us to go. <clears throat> it's kind of funny. I mean, a millisecond ago, well, two milliseconds ago, they're giving extraordinary kindness. And then, you know, a millisecond ago, he's you know, somehow uh, demonic. And now all of a sudden, he's a, he's a god. Superstition gets you nowhere. Superstition is problematic. They know, don't know how to interpret things in light of promise and providence. If you don't want to take my word for it. Listen to what this theologian says about superstition. When you believe in things that you don't understand, then you suffer. Superstition ain't the way. Stevie Wonder, the great theologian, said that. <laughs> Very superstitious. <laughs> it's actually theologically pretty good. <laughs> and sometimes even a stop clock is right twice a day. So, superstition will get you nowhere. It's why it's so important to understand God and His ways and His promises and to know that He can cause all things to work together for good to those who love Him and those who have been called according to His purposes. And it can help you to be optimistic. It really can. 
Verse 7, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius or Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius or Publius, whichever one you want, no church splits, please, lay sick with fever and dysentery, something even called Malta fever. They think it was caused by the milk of the Maltese goats. I think it might have been caused by the Lampuki pie. (laughs) I told you it might be relevant. (laughs) He's very ill. It could cause him to die, right? Um, Diarrhea, all of these adverse things. Um, It's serious. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. I just invite you to remember the we, we arrived, and we learned about this last week. We, it's because Luke is the narrator. He's accompanying Paul on this particular trek. Again, I won't get into it now. We talked about it last time. But it's just kind of fascinating to think. According to Colossians 4, Luke is a medical doctor. So we, we have the first century MD, Luke, who's on the scene, you know, and you've got this medical problem, and Paul's like, I got this. <laughs> you go. Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, steps in. So it's, it's a bit counterintuitive, but it actually adds to the significance of, of kind of what's going on here. It says in, are we on verse 9? We are on verse 9. It says, and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So let me ask you the question. Why did this happen? Why the healing? Let's start with wrong answers only. (laughs) Okay. Why did this healing happen? Well, maybe it was to keep Christians healthy. It's the new Christian healthcare plan, right? Sorry, Blue Cross, Blue Blue Shield. Um, So God's will is for Christians to always be healthy, um, to not have medical insurance, to not... Go to doctors. Um, and so that was what was going on here. So Christians should always be healthy from now on, and Christians should never die. Well, that would be the wrong answer. But a lot of people, sadly, will try to have you be gullible and say, you see the number at the bottom of the screen, please call now. Have your cards ready, right? Or something silly like that. That you don't, you do not get that in idea from the Bible. It's a real miracle. These are real miracles. These are extraordinary things happening. But did you, you catch the word I just used? These are, these are extraordinary things happening. Newsflash, the apostle Paul will grow old and he will die. Not from old age, but he will die. He doesn't live forever. Newsflash, the apostle Paul, in not even very much time from here, will not be able to heal his protege, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. You've got stomach problems, Timothy. Drink a little wine with your water. Why doesn't he just heal him? If it's the new Christian healthcare program, it's not the new Christian healthcare program. Now let's do right answers. He heals them because that, that looks a lot like what somebody else did when before he ascended, right? That, that looks like what Jesus did to, to show he's, he's different. And something significant is being announced and said here. Something extraordinary. That, that's it. And the Apostle Paul is an Apostle Paul, right? He's an Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it would make sense that this, this looks a lot like that. 
And it should make a lot of sense that, you know what, we should pay attention because something extraordinary is happening here when it comes to redemptive history. That's the idea. Not to mention the fact that it does give a preview, a preview of new life, eternal life, ultimate resurrection life. But this is not it. It's serving a purpose. It's a preview kind of picture, a foretaste of the new creation, resurrected life. So don't be gullible. Let's keep this in mind. God can heal. God can do anything that he wants to do that's not contrary to his own character or laws. But to suggest that this is normative, number one, I don't think you can prove from the Bible. And number two, you're not in a good place when it comes to company, when it comes to the history of the Christian church other than five minutes ago. Okay? Most Christians throughout history have believed that this is extraordinary. This proves apostleship and it's fading away. It's about the establishing of the early church. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep moving our way through this. Verse 10, they also honored us greatly. I bet they did after all that, right? This is amazing. They honored us greatly. And when they were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Doesn't say Paul preached the gospel to them. Maybe he didn't. Uh, when he says things elsewhere like, woe is me if I preach not the gospel, I would have to assume that he probably preached the gospel too. But we don't have those details here. But they give us, they gave them whatever they wanted as a good providence, right? Makes me wonder about the guy that we learned about last week, Julius, the Roman centurion who was in charge of making sure Paul got to Rome. Makes you wonder what Julius was thinking about this stuff. Just as an eyewitness, just as a fly on the wall. Like, what in the world? I've never seen such kindness and generosity from these barbarian kind of people. This is amazing. Not to mention the miracles. Well, we don't know what he thought, but we're just guessing. Let's keep going. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, probably another grain ship, large enough to hold the 270, however many people we learned about last time, with the twin gods as a figurehead, Castor and Pollux. More superstition. Oh, the irony too, right? Oh, the irony. The, 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 the twin gods on the front of that ship are going to do about as much good as the goddess justice. That's about how much good they're going to do. And even think about the Apostle Paul. As if the Apostle Paul is going to see the two deities on the front of the ship giving sailors good luck. As if he's thinking, oh, if we only would have had those on our last ship, we never would have been shipwrecked. Thank goodness. <laughs> no, he's not thinking that. The sovereign God of the universe, right, has promised him that he's going to get to Rome. Not that it would be smooth sailing, literally, but he's going to get there. He knows full well how funny it is, how ironic it is that they have their good luck charms. Verse 12 says, putting in at Syracuse, that's in Sicily, some 90 miles away. We stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. On the, that, I think that's the toe of Italy, 74 more miles. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. So now they're in our favor, especially so. And on the second day, we came to Patoli, 200 more miles. 
There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. How about this? I am bold in this in my notes. And so we came to Rome. Emboldened in saying it like that because this, this is, this is what we've been waiting for. I mean, this harkens back to Acts 1-8. This harkens back to the promises to Paul from Jesus. It even reminds me of when you read the book of Romans and the intro to Romans and the outro to Romans. He's longing to go to Rome. He's longing to be with Roman Christians so he can preach the gospel to them, even to the Christians. Right, It brings a certain stamp of, of unique apostolic authenticity to have an apostle come. Yes, indeed, this is true. Yes, indeed, this is right. Let me help you to become more well-grounded in the faith so that you can, from a human perspective, have Christianity surviving. Think how much happiness would be going on here. And so, Luke says, we came to Rome. <sighs> Roma, you know? That's how I think anyway. Verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. So long distances, 40 miles, 50 miles, whatever it takes, we're going to get there to go see the Apostle Paul and to greet him. On seeing them, I really like this part here. I hope you do as well. In verse 15. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Ah, believers. The believers I've been praying for, the believers I've written to, the believers I've been wanting to see. God, thank you for allowing me to get to Rome. Thank you for allowing me to be able to see these believers. And I also like it. Don't miss it. I think sometimes we don't think about this. On seeing them, he took courage. I don't think he was a coward before. He seemed pretty courageous. But there's something even more encouraging that happens. Right? His sense of courage is strengthened. He takes courage. He's more encouraged seeing Christians, seeing believers. Isn't it interesting that we typically think of it as the other way and only the other way? I'll, I would imagine, the text doesn't say it, when those Christians saw the Apostle Paul, probably gave them courage too. This is, this is going to be good. This is going to be great. This is what we've been waiting for, to be further grounded in the, the doctrines of grace, right? Like we've read about in Romans. Now we can ask him all of those questions that we've had. This is going to be wonderful. This is going to be good for the cause of Christ in Rome and around the world. This is wonderful. But isn't it, isn't it interesting that the, the, the apostle, Bible teacher, pastor, leader guy finds encouragement, finds courage from Christians. I like seeing that giftedness benefits both ways. Leaders encourage Christians. Christians encourage leaders. They need each other. I love that. Christians need Christians. How about verse 16? And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Doesn't sound like what I would want to do, but it seems positive. He's allowed to do this, waiting to be 
seen by Caesar, heard by Caesar, which is why he's there as a Roman citizen. And now he's going to address the Jews. So, so far it's been pretty much pagans and then Christians, and now he's going to address the Jews and it'll come to an end. So let's go ahead and go with verse 17. It says, and three day, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. This is really odd. I didn't do any, I didn't break our laws. I didn't do anything. It's still mine. It's ours. I belong. I'm a Jew. And how weird, how strange, how odd I was delivered over to all people, to the Romans as a criminal. What's this about? Verse 18. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, and he's addressing Jews, remember, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. So let's be clear. I, I'm, I don't have an axe to grind against Judaism. I don't, I'm not against the nation. I'm not against the heritage. I'm not against the book. I'm not against the people. I'm not against any of it. As a matter of fact, I am one and I'm all for it. Which is, what should cause us to say, well, that's, that's weird then. Why would you be arrested? That's strange then. Why, why, why would you have to appear before Caesar? Huh. Verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. All kinds of wrong, all kinds of odd, oddity going on here, right? And we won't take the time to review it all, but this has been a theme that's come up more and more lately, but throughout the book of Acts, the hope of Israel has been a reference to the what? The resurrection. Again and again and again, hope has been tied to resurrection, okay? And the hope of Israel is tied to resurrection as well. That's what's come up chapter after chapter in recent days. And so he doesn't elaborate here or Luke's record of it isn't an elaboration, but we should read that into it. I'm chained. I'm a prisoner. Not because I'm a criminal. Not because I'm against Israel. No, but because of hope. The hope of Israel. That seems so weird. It should seem so weird. It is so weird. How strange. He's been preaching hope, resurrection hope, which is in the Jewish Bible, which we will see. And they don't like it, and they're against him. This is not apples to apples, but just as an observation. Isn't it strange? Isn't it weird? Isn't it odd? That even today people are against Christians for telling them about hope. Let me tell you how you can be forgiven. Let me tell you how you can be adopted into God's family. Let me tell you how you can be sure that though you die, you will live. And we say, I have some good news to share with you. It's really good news. In fact, fact, it's the best news you'll ever hear. It's really strange. It's really odd. It really doesn't make any sense. 
why people would be hostile to you telling them about what can be good for them. And yet we do know that people don't like to be told what to do. They don't like to be told they're right, wrong. They don't like to be told about sin. They don't like to be told about the sovereignty of God who's in charge and who always knows best. And this letter is actually going to end. Oh, it'll end on a good note. But before he gets to the good note, he is going to give these Jews a parting shot that actually has to do with that very thing. The problem is not Jesus. The problem is not hope. The problem is not the good news. The problem is somewhere else. And we'll get to it. But just do notice how, how, how strange it is. His whole argumentation is, can you possibly ever, ever believe I've been arrested and gone through all of this stuff because I've been telling people about resurrection hope? And hopefully an honest thinking mind would say, that's crazy. Because it is. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 21, here's the response. And they said to him, We've, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. Which I find to be surprising because they've been tracking him like hound dogs uh, when it comes to when he was in Israel. But that's what's recorded. So I'll go with it. Verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what your views are for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So they know something about Christianity. It's bad. How about 23? When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them. He explained to them as the idea. He made argument, explanation. He explained to them, expounded to them testifying, giving personal knowledge. I was on the road to Damascus. I've come to believe this. I used to be an unbeliever opposed and now I've come to believe it. And therefore I'm affirming it myself. It's affected me and my life. So notice the expounding, the explaining, then the testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So he, he gave the biblical rationale, biblical explanation, biblical argument. Let me show you chapter and verse, text after text, connect the dots. This is not a new concept. And then let me tell you how it's even affected my life. We might even say he argues objectively based upon the text. He argues subjectively, subjectively based upon his own experience. And he's come to believe in Jesus and it's changed his life. He's doing both of these kinds of things about the kingdom of God, about the king, right? Just think in terms of that's just a loaded statement. Sometimes the Bible says gospel, the good news of the gospel. Sometimes it says good news of the kingdom. Sometimes it says it in different ways. But if you just stop and think, Jesus is the Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah means king. Oh, he's the one we're waiting for. If Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the king. And therefore, he's going to bring a new creation, right? And his kingdom will have no end. And so you want to trust in the ultimate king, not the oppressor king, not the king who lies, not the king who takes advantage of you, not even the best kings who've never been perfect kings. No, the king that will rule and reign forever as promised in the promise to David, one will come in his line. He's that one is what he's arguing. He's the one who offers resurrection, that that king. He's the one. That's what he's been arguing with them. And do notice it does say from the law of Moses and from the prophets. 
So he's trying to show them the Old Testament is an expectant book, right? It's anticipating something. If you only had the Old Testament, it would seem like it had a pretty confusing ending. All of the anticipation, all of the looking forward, and then it just ends? So he's not saying Old Testament is bad. He's saying, you know what? It's anticipating something. Let let me connect the dots for you. Let me show you. And we don't have them recorded here, but we've seen them recorded elsewhere in the book of Acts. The actual texts, like Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Moses says, like me, but not me, like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Even Moses, just read Moses. He's not the guy. He's not the end all be all. Don't read the Old Testament like that. Peter uses that in Acts 3. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, that right there should get you thinking, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That was in Acts chapter 2. He uses it there. Psalm 2, 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Acts 13, 33, it's used there. It's talking about resurrection. Oh, Israel's hope. It's even there in Psalm 2. And the list could go on. So what is Paul doing? Arguing, logically, explaining with a text. He also is personally testifying to them, wanting them to see it in the Bible. I'm not an anti-Semite. I'm a Jew talking to fellow Jews. And if you only have the Old Testament, it doesn't end right. It's anticipating the ultimate Moses, if you will, the ultimate David, if you will. We'd better keep moving. Verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. I appreciate the awkward wording. It doesn't say some believed and others didn't believe. Some were convinced, so they believed and others disbelieved. Let's remember the, one of the greatest evangelists ever. He wasn't perfect. Only Jesus was. But he, I think Paul is probably a pretty good evangelist. He, was, he had a pretty good understanding of the gospel. <laughs> right? Some are convinced and believe, and others disbelieve. Right? I, I mention this because too often time, too, too many times we Christians think if, if, unless we get a unanimous positive response, we better tinker with the message. No, that's not what Jesus did. And it's not what Paul's going to do. We better keep going. The very same message is affirmed by some and rejected by others. How about verse 25? And disagreeing among themselves. They departed after Paul had made one statement. This is what we sometimes call a parting shot. This is, this is not the way you win friends and influence people. This is not politically correct. But it's Christ-like because this is the very thing Jesus does in John chapter 12. The Holy Spirit was given in saying to your fathers, was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, this is Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Again, Jesus quotes this very same text in John 12, 40. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes, they can barely hear. Excuse me, with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
How much of that is literal? None of it. They don't need glasses. They don't need hearing aids. And they don't need heart medicine. None of it's literal, but it's all true. It's all true. It's all about their spiritual condition. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is not with the Bible. The problem is not with the New Testament. The problem is not with the Old Testament. The problem is not with the Gospel. The problem is with you. There's something terribly wrong. And it's not Jesus. You are spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind. 28 says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God, I love the way that's worded, this salvation of God, it is His, has been sent to the Gentiles, the people they don't like, the people they see as godless because they are. They will listen. Which just seems so strange. And it shows us something about the sinfulness of sin and its blinding effects. But you know what? There's a strategic shift happening here and now it's time to focus on the Gentiles. Doesn't mean no Jews will ever be saved. Doesn't mean that at all. Read Romans chapter 9 and following. Doesn't mean no Jews will even be saved here. But do notice that the the focus now is going to be on the Gentiles. Let's go to verse 30 and we'll wrap things up. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus King, right? Christ, with all boldness and without hindrance. What a great ending. What a great ending. What an, it's optimistic. I'm generally a pretty pessimistic person, least realistic. It's an optimistic ending. And, and I want to encourage you, dear Christians, to be optimistic, understanding promise and providence, right? The gospel was going forth. He could be bold about it and he preached the gospel without hindrance. He wasn't afraid. It doesn't mean he was going to live forever. He's going to be martyred. It's not recorded here. But but we have an ending on an optimistic note. The gospel's doing its thing. And the apostle Paul is courageous about it, bold about it. It's good. This is great. But we're not like, oh, happy, clappy, everything's so good. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even though uh, we take that verse out of context, right? It's true you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you if it's his will, Right? Paul couldn't do all things. He's going to be martyred. Paul couldn't do all things. He's imprisoned. Paul couldn't do all things. Timothy's sick and he can't fix his problem. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. True, if it's God's will. Okay, it's a great verse, but it's used out of context. But here's the thing. I sound pessimistic, don't I? The promise is there. But we also know about providence. Here's the promise to us. Okay, Let, let's let's step away from Acts a little bit. The promise to us is Jesus says and said, "I will build what? I will build my church." Matthew 16. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. Not even death can stop me from me building my assembly of believers. And we say that's promise. No matter what happens, come heaven or high water. 
we know that this is going to happen. And so we can say bad things might happen along the way, but we know this is going to happen. Not only that, we have other promises like Romans 1. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Oh, that's a great promise. We know this. Not everybody's going to believe. That makes me, you know, pessimistic. But you know what? But, But it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who does believe. This is great. And there's another promise let me tell you about and remind you of. Romans 10 says, faith comes by what? It comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What a great promise that makes us bold. We're not in the same situation. We're not in Rome in the first century uh, under house arrest. But you know what we are doing is right now we are knowing Jesus made the promise. We are knowing that it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is. And we are knowing that we're called to preach to everybody because faith, if anybody is going, going to believe, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, which is the gospel. So bold, 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 promise, promise, promise. And then when this good thing happens, this bad thing happens, this good thing happens, this bad thing happens, I can know about providence. And God is causing everything to work together for good to those who love him and those who have been called according to his purpose. These are good days for gospel ministry. Really good days for gospel ministry. If we keep our ever-loving theological Bible minds on straight, for the benefit of Omaha, Nebraska, and beyond, right? I hope you're encouraged by that. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he loved us and gave himself up for us, that he lived a perfect life of obedience under your law. He did everything right. He was perfectly obedient, and that he then voluntarily went to the cross to be treated as if he was the worst sinner of all that he made perfect atonement for our sins. And we are thankful that he was raised from the dead, victorious. We are thankful that he has ascended and that he claims us as his own. Help us as men and women and boys and girls who trusted in Christ, who've been reconciled to you through him, to not be prideful, to not be arrogant or think highly of ourselves, knowing that we've received grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy. But do help us to be motivated to tell other people about the good news of what it means to be reconciled through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.